We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 19. Hebrews chapter 13, looking at these verses 17 to 19. As you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us, asking God to show us grace now for the hearing of His Word. So let's pray. Father, we do confess together that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one foundation of His church. We stand upon nothing else, Father, than the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. His blood has cleansed us from our sins, has purchased us from the domain of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of God. We pray now that You would give us ears to hear what the Lord Jesus says to His church through this Word inspired by the Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that our eyes would be firmly fixed upon Christ, that even as we consider how the church should be structured and governed and led, that we would think quickly and much of Christ, the Great Shepherd, and that our eyes would be fixed upon Him, that our hope would be anchored in Him. Father, I pray that You would please keep me from error this morning, that as I speak from God's Word, that it would be clear and faithful to the text, that Christ would be exalted, that the truth would be made known. We pray for discernment as a church body, Father, that we might hold fast to the things that are true, and that You might preserve us, God, for the last day through the regular hearing of Your Word. Father, we ask these things now with great confidence, knowing that You hear us because of Christ, who is seated at Your right hand. We pray in His name. Amen. There's an increasingly popular bumper sticker showing up on cars these days, and I wonder if you've seen it around town. The bumper sticker says in bright colors, all capital letters, question authority. You seen that bumper sticker? It's normally on cars that also have that silly bumper sticker about coexist, but that's a different, that's a different sermon intro. Question authority, it says, in bright colors and all caps. I'm always fascinated when I see one of these particular bumper stickers because if you think about it, a car is a strange place to put that particular message. The idea of questioning authority is presumably about independence and freedom. We don't need people to tell us what to do. We can live our own lives. Authority leads to oppression, so we should question authority. But here's the strange part. We know for a fact a person driving a car with that bumper sticker does not believe that message. At least not entirely. How do we know that? Because they stop at stoplights. And they drive on the right side of the road. You see, if questioning authority were such a good thing, then every driver with that bumper sticker should just run stoplights shouting out the window, I'm free! You can't tell me what to do. But of course, no one in his right mind would do such a thing. And why not? Because obeying stoplights is a good thing. Driving on the right side of the road is safe. Living under authority is good when you're driving a car. That's why it's a strange place to put a bumper sticker that says, question authority. Every experience you have driving a car tells you that that message is dead wrong. Now, that's a somewhat silly example, but it does illustrate something about the culture in which we find ourselves. By and large, we misunderstand both the nature and the purpose of authority. Both the nature and the purpose of authority. Somewhere along the way, we've bought into the mistaken idea that authority is a bad thing and that it equals oppression. What we need is less authority so that we can find more freedom for ourselves. 
so the thinking goes. But in reality, the opposite is true. Authority is not a bad thing. Tyranny is bad, but tyranny is not the same thing as authority, not in the least. Rightly established authority is one of God's great blessings to us. In His wisdom, God has instituted authority not to oppress us, but so that we might flourish in the world He has made, living life to the fullest as human beings created in His image. If you think back to the very beginning of Scripture, to the very first chapters of Genesis, you can see this truth in action. Go back there with me just for a moment in your minds. Adam and Eve enjoyed life in a state of perfection, working in the garden in unbroken fellowship with God and with one another. It's a bit hard to imagine, isn't it, at this point? Life at that moment was the pinnacle of goodness and blessing. But have you ever considered what maintained that perfection? What kept the perfection in place in the garden? Authority. God's authority in setting the boundaries for Adam and Eve. As as they lived in submission to the authority of God, they were free to experience life as God intended. But of course, that's not where Genesis ends. Tragedy struck as Adam and Eve listened to the serpent whose lie targeted precisely this issue of authority. Remember what Satan said to them? If you eat of the fruit, you won't die. You will be like God. Friends, that's a call to question authority. At its heart, the serpent's lie was that if Adam and Eve would throw off the authority of God, then they would find freedom for themselves. But that was not the case. What did the man and woman find when they threw off God's authority? Not freedom, slavery, and ultimately death. So this misunderstanding about authority is not simply a modern day trend captured on bumper stickers. It's been with us from the very beginning. Our natural bent is to resist authority. But the result of that resistance is always heartache and slavery. And so we regularly need this reminder. God has instituted authority not to oppress us, but that so we might flourish In the world He has made. Authority rightly established by God is for our good. As we look to Hebrews 13 this morning, we notice this issue of authority has a massive bearing on our passage. If you read the first line of verse 17, you'll quickly see what I mean. Look what the author writes. Very first phrase. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Friends, whatever else we'll say about this passage, we cannot avoid this issue, the issue of authority. To talk about this text is to deal with authority and submission in the church. It's inescapable. It's inescapable. In His wisdom, God has structured His church in a certain way. And that structure involves both the exercising of and the following of leadership, authority, spiritual leadership. That structure doesn't fit our individualistic bent, and it certainly doesn't follow the anti-authority spirit of our age, but it is the teaching of God's Word. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we should listen to what it says. You see, this is part of why churches should regularly preach through books of the Bible. Because if I were picking the topic, this is not what I would pick to talk about. 
If I were picking the topic, spiritual authority would not be at the top of my list. But when we regularly preach through books of the Bible, we're not the ones setting the topic. God is. And through His Word, He continually reforms and shapes His church. So as we, as we set out to study this text, I recognize there are difficult aspects related to these things. Look, I, I feel the difficulty in my own heart when we read words like obey and submit. So much of this passage goes against our natural and our cultural bent. And that's precisely why we need to listen to it. And then respond in faith. God intends this for our good. As we work through this passage, I hope to draw our attention to four truths related to spiritual leadership. If you're taking notes, that's going to be the outline. Four truths related to spiritual leadership. Some of these truths address our minds. They teach us how to think rightly about leadership in the church. Some address our hearts. They teach us how to feel. And others address our wills. They call us to action in response. So mind, heart, will. This passage addresses the whole person. So with that, follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author, beginning in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord. May God bless now the preaching of His Word. As we said a moment ago, we'll be considering four truths from God's Word this morning. The first truth actually comes from the surrounding context and it addresses the nature of spiritual leadership. The nature of spiritual leadership. You can see from verse 17, the author's burden is to teach us how to respond to leadership. That's why he uses words like obey and submit. Those are clearly commands calling for a response. However, before we can consider that response, we need to step back and make sure we are correctly defining what spiritual leadership is. Understand, friends, this is the necessary starting point. The Bible's definition of spiritual authority is different from how the world defines authority. And if we're not careful, we can bring those worldly categories into the church within, which then hijacks the discussion from the very start. So, so this is the necessary starting place. How does the Bible define spiritual leadership in the church? Note with me a few characteristics from the context of Hebrews 13. First off, spiritual leadership must be grounded in the authority of God's Word. Grounded in the authority of God's Word. Look back to verse 7 where the author mentioned the congregation's past leaders. Notice how he defines those leaders as those who spoke to you the Word of God. Friends, that's where leaders in the church gain their authority. Not from themselves, but from the authoritative, inerrant, inspired Word of God. 
This is vital for us to understand. While elders and pastors have authority in the church, that authority is not inherent in the office or in the man. The pastor has a derived authority. It comes only from God's Word. This is why above all else, an elder must be a man of the Scriptures. A man of the Word. Both in his public preaching and in his private ministry, the Word of God must be quick to come out of his mouth. For that is the sole source of spiritual leadership in the church. must be grounded in the authority of God's Word. Next, we, we note that spiritual leadership must be confirmed by godly character. Again, look back to verse 7. Confirmed by godly character. The author says, consider the outcome of the leader's lives. In other words, take notice of how they lived. Take notice of their character. The assumption is the leader's character was commendable. It was marked by godliness. To illustrate the importance of this point, think of exercising leadership in the church like driving a freight train. Okay, exercising leadership like driving a freight train. The engine of that train is God's word, which is necessary and supplies the power. But godly character is the tracks, the rails on which that train of leadership runs. And so without godliness, a leader can try all he wants to drive that train. It won't go very far. He can even emphasize the Word of God explicitly in his ministry, but without the tracks of character, he's not going anywhere. Godly character is that essential. It shows the congregation that an elder is himself a man under authority. He doesn't simply say things about the Bible. He lives under the Bible himself. Spiritual leadership is confirmed by godly character. By the way, brothers and sisters, this necessity is not confined to the office of pastor. This is true of every arena where you're called to demonstrate spiritual leadership in your home, with your children, in a discipling relationship with other believers. Whatever the context, godly character is essential for true spiritual leadership. I wish it were the case that all you had to do to lead was just say the right things. But it's not. Right? So often, more is caught than it is taught. The, uh, example trumps instruction almost every time. So if we want to lead others, then we have to start right here by putting ourselves under the Word of God, killing sin, and then walking in faithful obedience. Leadership is confirmed by godly character. There's one final aspect of spiritual leadership we need to note. Spiritual leadership must ultimately point to the Lord Jesus Christ. It must ultimately point to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not tacking this on here because we all know it's true. It's actually in the text. Look at verse 20. Look, at, look down at verse 20. Notice how the author identifies Christ as the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, now this is a bit surprising. Verse 20 is part of the closing benediction to the letter. So, if the author was going to identify Jesus in one of his offices, which one do you think he would pick for the book of Hebrews? High priest. But that's not what he says. Instead of calling Jesus the high priest, he calls him the great shepherd. In fact, this is the only instance in Hebrews where Christ is referred to as the shepherd. It's the only instance. And note where it comes. Immediately following the discussion of submission to leaders... Friends, that progression is no accident. It's no accident. 
Pastors are certainly called to lead, but they are under shepherds only in the church. There is one chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the church belongs to Him. Therefore, all true spiritual leadership consistently points people away from the leaders and to the Lord Jesus. So, that's a thumbnail sketch of how the Bible defines spiritual leadership. It's not about being strategic or visionary. It's not about having a certain personality or the ability to get stuff done. Spiritual leadership is grounded in the authority of Scripture, confirmed by godly character, and ultimately points people to Christ, the Great Shepherd. You've got to keep all of those marks in mind for the rest of the sermon. Alright, now that we've clearly defined the nature of spiritual leadership, we're ready to tackle the commands of our text. Let's look at verse 17 where we see the response to spiritual leadership. The response to spiritual leadership. The language of this verse is strong with the author using two imperatives, obey and submit, to describe the right response to spiritual leadership. And I think it helps to summarize those commands with this phrase, a confident trust that is willing to follow. That's how I would summarize that phrase, obey your leaders and submit to them. A confident trust that is willing to follow. Now, let me show you how we get that summary from the passage. Notice the word obey. This is important. This is not the same term that is found in passages like Ephesians 6.1 where children are instructed to obey their parents. Or Hebrews 5.9 where believers are described as obeying Christ. It's not the same word. This is a different word that has more to do with confidence. Confidence in someone so that you put your trust in them. Now certainly the word includes following, but it is a following that is rooted in trust, not subjection. Trust, not subjection. Notice also that other command, submit. This term is actually stronger than the first, but what's interesting is that this word is, is used only here in the New Testament. It's only used in this verse. And it has the sense of yielding to someone else willingly. Yielding to someone else. Placing yourself under their authority. That's why we translate it with a word like submit. But again, this yielding, this submission is not coerced. It's willingly given. It's willingly given. So when you put those considerations together, that's where you get our summary. The right response to spiritual leadership in the church is a confident trust that is willing to follow. Not subjection, not coercion, confident trust that is willing to follow. Now, let's be clear here. I don't want to leave any room for misunderstanding. This response is not universal or unquestioned. It's not universal or unquestioned. The author is not telling us that congregations must follow their leaders no matter what. That kind of blind subjection has no place in the body of Christ. Instead, the author is saying here that this response is given only to leaders who are themselves following the Scriptures. That's where the confidence comes from. 
that the leaders are themselves following the Word of God. You see, this is why we started the message with the nature of spiritual leadership. Because those characteristics must be present in order for this to work. You've got to have those three characteristics from the beginning or else this, this isn't going to work in a church. There's no confidence. There's no willingness to follow. But when those characteristics are present, this is the response that is expected. A congregation should be characterized by a confident trust in the leaders God has provided with that trust then being demonstrated in their willingness to follow the leadership. Now, you might be asking at this point, so what does this look like in the life of a church? What does this look like? To which I would answer, observe the life of this congregation. Observe the life of this church. Brothers and sisters, I say this as a commendation to you, the membership of Midtown Baptist. In our few years together, you have exemplified this kind of response. You have lived out this confident trust that is willing to follow. Be encouraged then that God's grace is evident among us in our midst. Be encouraged. We have any number of weaknesses as a church. Any number of weaknesses. But by God's grace, this is not one of them. I read an article this week that talks about a phenomenon called preacher-eater churches. Preacher-eater churches. These are churches that chew up pastors and spit them out. You know, the average tenure of a pastor is three years. And most of those guys are leaving beat up, chewed up, and worn down. Three years. You can't even get to know people in three years. So I read this article about preacher-eater churches. And you know what I thought as I read the article? I don't have any idea what that experience is like. That's what I thought. Praise God. I don't have any idea what that experience is like. That's a commendation to you, brothers and sisters. That's an evidence of God's grace among us together. Through the work of the Spirit, we have tasted the blessing of this passage together, and I would urge you to join me in praying that we might continue to do so for many years to come. As we look back at verse 17, you'll notice the author is not finished with this response. He doesn't simply give the command to follow. He then provides the reason we should do so. Look at the next phrase in the verse. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. So, why should we be willing to follow the leaders God has provided? Because their leadership is for our eternal good. That's why. The image here is that of a city watchman who stays awake through the night in order to protect his fellow citizens from harm. That's how elders and pastors function in the church. They keep watch diligently, tirelessly. They keep watch so that the congregation is cared for. And what's more, this, this care is oriented towards eternity. Notice the author says they keep watch over your souls. Not just over your lives or over your behavior, but over your souls. In other words, their leadership is for your eternal good in Christ. Friends, that's really the takeaway that I want to emphasize at this point. Spiritual authority and leadership are always for the good of others. 
always. They are radically others-centered. We grossly pervert spiritual leadership if we make it about ourselves. Spiritual leadership is not about our position or influence or our agenda. It is about the eternal good of those we have been called to lead. And again, this is true in every arena, whether in the church, in the home, or in the context of ministry to fellow believers. So, if you are a husband, God has called you to spiritual leadership. Not to lord it over your wife, but to lead her for her good with her best interest at heart. Your leadership means you're the chief servant. If you, have a, if you are a parent, father, or mother, God has endowed you with authority not just to control your children, but to do good to them with eternity in view. If you are discipling another believer, leading a Bible study, teaching to various Christian groups, you have leadership. You have a platform so that others might be blessed through you. You see, this is where most leadership failures begin. We get our wires crossed and we start thinking spiritual leadership is primarily about us. My position, my agenda, my gifting. And, and please note, this is not always like a horrible, ugly, like overtly power-hungry kind of thing. It might just be as, as a little bit off as somebody saying, well, I've got an agenda that I believe is good for the church and I'm going to push it without thought given to the people who are being led. Whenever we start to think that it's primarily about us, our gifting, our agenda, our platform, we've lost sight of God's purpose and the whole enterprise is derailed. Sadly, there's a whole number of very public leadership failures in the past several years in evangelicalism that I could point to and, and use as an example to where if we drilled down to the core of those failures, what you would probably find is that at some point, the leader began to think more in terms of himself than he did of others. How, how can I continue to grow my influence? Influence is not bad, by the way. Influence is not bad, but it's the reason why you want to have it. We would do well at this point to remember the example of the Lord Jesus. No one has more authority than Christ. Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He rules everything. And yet, what did Jesus use His authority to do? Mark 10.45 The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. It's the prime example. Spiritual authority and leadership are always oriented towards the good of others for the glory of God. And if that's not how we think of it, then we're not leaders. So, friends, as God calls you to lead in various ways, whatever the context, I pray that we would do so with this truth firmly in view. Spiritual leadership must be oriented away from ourselves and toward the good of those we are called to serve. That brings us then to our third truth, which is closely connected to the issue of our response. It's the seriousness of spiritual leadership. The seriousness of spiritual leadership. In the last half of verse 17, the author reminds us these things are about much more than church government and structure. These are issues that have eternal consequences and that should add weight to our discussion. To put it very plainly, these are not small things. How we lead and how we respond 
to that leadership matter on an eternal scale. That's what we need to see here at the end of verse 17. It begins, first of all, with pastors, with those who are called to lead in the church. Notice how the author describes the responsibility of pastoral leadership as those who will have to give an account. As those who will have to give an account. The magnitude of that statement cannot be overemphasized. There is a day coming. There is a day coming when every pastor will stand before the chief shepherd and the Lord Jesus will look that man in the eye and demand an account for how that pastor has led Christ's people. How did you care for them? What did you feed them? Did you bear their burdens? Did you point them to the gospel? Did you admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak? Were you patient with them all? What a day that will be. What a weight this should add to the task of spiritual leadership. This is not a small thing, but has repercussions that ripple out beyond today, out into eternity. And that reality should sober any man who desires such spiritual leadership. It should cause every leader in the church to return again and again to those essential marks of leadership and ask himself, am I grounded in the authority of God's Word? Does my life confirm the leadership that I offer? Am I pointing others to Christ and not to myself? The seriousness of this work cannot be overstated. This in turn should help the congregation follow the leadership of their pastors. This is part of what the author is getting at here. He's trying to help the congregation follow. Think about how it works. If the pastors in a church live with a clear sense of their accountability to Christ, then the congregation can have more confidence in their leadership. The congregation will be able to say, I know I know these men are not misusing their authority because their lives display the weighty recognition of accountability to God. You see the connection? The elders in the church are themselves under authority. They are accountable to the Lord Jesus. And their lives should demonstrate a sense of that weight so that it helps foster the confidence in their brothers and sisters to follow. These are not small things. The the seriousness, however, doesn't end with pastors. It extends even to the members of the congregation as well. Look at the the last sentence of verse 17. Let them, the leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the author is exhorting us to respond to our leaders with the right attitude. How we respond affects how our leaders experience the burden of leadership. Your response determines how the pastors experience their responsibility of leading. If we willingly follow, then the weight of leadership is a joy. But if we buck against our leaders and become stiff-necked, then leadership is a groan. That word groan is a vivid picture of exasperation at the end of a well-spent effort. Think of a frazzled mother 
at the end of a long day who has invested many long hours in her sons or her daughters, but who can't do anything at that point but sigh and say under her breath, will this ever get any better? That's the essence of the picture here. Doing all that you can, but exasperated at the end. That's the groaning that he has in view. What's most striking, though, is that last phrase, for that would be of no advantage to you. You would expect him to say that would be of no advantage to the leaders, right? But he says it's no advantage to you. So if our response makes our leaders groan, then we, the members of the church, get no advantage. Now what does that mean? What is this advantage that the author is talking about? Well, think for a moment about a church where the leaders are groaning in their work. So imagine a church where the leaders are groaning, where they're just exasperated. What does that church look like? The book of Hebrews actually tells us. It looks like members who drift away from the gospel because they do not pay close attention to what they have heard. It looks like members who are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Members who neglect to meet together. Members who do not hold fast to the confession of Christ. Those are the responses that would make pastors groan. And why do they groan? Because those responses reveal that the members of the church are in a dangerous position. That's why the author says it would be of no advantage to you. If you respond to spiritual leadership in a way that causes your leaders to groan, that says something bad about the state of your soul. That's what he's saying. It means there's a cause for concern about your spiritual life, about your faith. You see, that's why I say there is a seriousness to how we respond to leadership. Because it says something about what's going on deep in our own hearts. Again, brothers and sisters, I want, I want to be clear at this point. I don't want to leave any room for misunderstanding. Pastors are fallible men. Elders are nothing more than needy sinners who are trying to show other sinners where to find some grace. We cannot get you to heaven. Only Christ can bring you to the heavenly city. But in God's providence, the Lord has established leaders in the church who speak the Word of God as a means of encouraging our perseverance. Is their speaking perfect? No. But they do speak the Word as a means of encouragement. So inasmuch as our leaders point us to Christ through the Scriptures, we should follow them. We should follow, trusting that in the beautiful balance of authority and submission, the triune God is working for the good of us all, that we might reach the heavenly city together, safe in Christ. So, as you can see, these are, these are serious issues. There is a weight to spiritual leadership in the church, both for pastors and for members of the congregation, that should get our attention. And this, in turn, makes the final truth of the text so important and helpful. In verses 18 and 19, we see the support for spiritual leadership. We've looked at the nature. We've looked some at the encouragement that we should find. Now we get the support for spiritual leadership. You may have noticed when we read the passage earlier that the transition from verse 17 to verse 18 is rather abrupt. 
At one moment, the author's talking about submission and accountability to God. And then the next, he says, pray for us. It's a very abrupt transition. And that has led some commentators to see verses 18 and 19 as little more than a personal postscript from the author to his readers. And on one level, that is true. These verses are clearly very personal, especially verse 19, where the author asks for prayer that he might be restored to the congregation. So they're clearly personal. But on another level, these verses are much more than a postscript. The author is not changing subjects here. I don't think he's changing subjects. His request for prayer is vitally connected to the issue of spiritual leadership. Notice again what he says in verse 18. He he is sure, the author is sure that he has a clear conscience. He is confident that in all his dealings with the congregation, he has acted honorably. In other words, he's confident that he's led the way he's supposed to. He's not abused his authority. He's not taken advantage of the congregation. He has displayed godly character, rooted in the Word, pointing to Christ. He has done these things. He's done his job well. And yet, he still asks for their prayers. Why? Because even when we have done all that we should do, we are still dependent on the God who hears prayers and answers by His grace. Pastors can stand upon God's Word and cultivate godly character and point people to Christ and still, at the end of the day, those pastors are dependent upon the triune God and if God does not work by His Spirit through His Word, their leadership will come to nothing. A congregation can follow their leaders in confident trust, glorifying God and making the task of leadership a joyful burden and still, that congregation stands in need of God's sustaining, empowering grace. You see, that's why the author shifts to prayer seemingly abruptly. Because prayer at its core is an expression of our dependence upon the living God. When you have done all that you could do and fulfilled your responsibilities, you are still a servant in need of the Master's help. Brothers and sisters, I cannot think of a more encouraging way to end this message than to point us all to the triune God. Leaders are important. Pastors are necessary in a church. Our response is crucial and connected with the state of our souls. All of those things are true and deserve our consideration. But over all of those things, there stands the living God. He is the God who hears prayers. He is the God who sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to lay down His life as the great shepherd, only to take it up again as the Lord of the church. And He is the God who by His grace will bring us all safely to the heavenly city. Therefore, as we go out this morning, may we go out with prayerful hearts. That's the application I want us to leave with today. May we go out with prayerful hearts. Let us pray for our leaders, those who speak the Word of God to us. Let us pray for our own hearts that we might respond in a way that pleases the Lord. And let us pray above all that God would be glorified as we all together live in submission to His Word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your kindness in giving us Your Word that speaks authoritatively over our lives to which we must submit ourselves to which we must respond in obedience and in faith. And we praise You, Father, that when we do this, when we submit ourselves to Your Word, what we find is not oppression, but freedom. To live life according to Your will and according to Your wisdom. 
We pray, God, that You would work by Your Spirit and through Your Word in this church to make the things that we have seen in this passage true of us from our pastors down through the members so that all of our life together may picture what is described here in this text to the glory of Christ and for the spread of His Gospel. We pray this, Father, confident that You hear us. In Christ's name, Amen.